Hi, I'm Audrey Bellis, and you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon Español. We tell stories about fierce, femme, leaders, and activists of color bettering our worlds. Let's get started. Hey guys, we are back with Imani. Welcome to the podcast, Miss Quinn. Thank you. Is it Miss Quinn? Mrs. Quinn. Miss Quinn. Girl, I always no, feel Mrs. like awkward to like say that because I've been corrected. I was like, hey, miss. And somebody was like, Mrs. And I was like, oh, my bad. <laughs> you really adopted that. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not here. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Miss Quinn, it is yeah. a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Brown Girls Rising. Thank you. For our guests that are not familiar with Swage, with your brand and who you are, give us a quick rundown on what you do and how you came on the scene. Awesome. Cool. So Swage is a multicultural lifestyle brand. So its whole mission is based within conscious textile designing that is all based around open inclusion of different multicultural backgrounds, as well as female empowerment through the platform Goddesses That Give. Oh, I love that. I like to think of myself as goddess. I I think just in general, like elevating like our sisters as goddesses, like recognizing like the beauty in women, right? Because I feel like so often we're not just being cut down, we're cutting down each other. Oh, yeah. No, it's all about language and understanding language and kind of elevating that within the consciousness of everyone. And so understanding that women carry goddess energy and also men as well can carry goddess energy. So it's just the idea of female empowerment and how you can carry that within yourself. I love that. And tell us a little bit more about the name Swage. Swage, I got, so basically when I started this, the design portion of it was important, but even more so than that, the social activism and what kind of was the driving force behind it, which was for me being a creative and having a cause and a vision. And so when I came up with a name, I meditate on a daily basis in the mornings. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to meditate. And today I'm getting the name. Like it's going to come to me. And so Swage is not like a word that I made up. I can't take credit for it. If you hashtag it on Instagram, you will find a lot of people that don't want to say swag. So they say Swage instead. Oh my gosh. I did not even think about that, but I'm going to use that in that (laughs) that sense now. (laughs) Yep. Hashtag Swage. So, um... But I got it during a a meditation. I was trying to come up with something that was regal and had a sense of leadership and power behind it, but also being feminine and sophisticated. And so with those kind of words in mind, I ended up coming up with Swage. I love that, Swage. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, her body don't stop, her swagger don't quit. And I'm going to be like, my swage don't quit. <laughs> swage all day. <laughs> yes. That yeah. is so good. With my rosé. Yep. Rose swage all day with my rosé on oh a Sunday. <laughs> you guys, I just gave myself my own boomerang. I'm just yeah. sitting here wiggling my ass all like boomerang, boomerang, but there's nobody taking a boomerang. <laughs> there's a visual of it. There's a it's visual a mental, of it. You got to use your imagination. Just picture me <laughs> shimmy shaking, which leads me to digging a little deeper into your past and how you got here. You are the queen of jiggling the ass mm-hmm. and other, you know, Dancing. bodily movements. So you are past LAUSD instructor, dance choreographer. I'm curious, has there been a multicultural dance experience for you as well? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up doing traditional West African dance from like Senegal, Guinea, and Ghana um, primarily. That was my upbringing with with, um, my dance background. And then in like high school and college, I got into modern and contemporary and hip hop and a little bit of dance hall and salsa. Mm -hmm. So I taught in the LAUSD charter school system for four years. And I did a lot of like Afro hip hop with my students and also hip hop and a little bit of contemporary. I got into like dance therapy. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Using movement as a, just a form of expression to like be lethargic and kind of get out stuff that you're working through in a way, in a language that people aren't typically used to using. So. Okay. I'm going to totally white girl myself right now. (laughs) Uh, Grey's Anatomy. You guys ever watch yeah. Grey's Anatomy, especially yeah. the early seasons when, you know, Meredith and Christina used to sit there and grab the bottle of tequila and they're like, all right, we got to dance this out. 
yeah. some shit has happened. We got to dance this gotta out, which is totally out. what comes to mind when I think of dance therapy and just letting loose on the floor. I like to think of myself as a good dancer. If you've seen me dancing, you don't think so. You were just too sober. <laughs> Clearly, you needed to be Your a little drunker. Is not right. <laughs> it's not right because the drunker you are, the better I am. Um, we were joking before the podcast started that I think, I don't know if I'm a good dancer. I just think I have a big ass and I'm distracting you with how large my ass is and how fast it's moving. Right. Which you move the hips. The hips don't lie. Yeah, these hips don't lie. They just jiggle. <laughs> they just jiggle. They just jiggle a little bit. <laughs> right. But I love to dance. And I think that's such a, especially as a Latina, like I feel like even the stereotype, okay, here it is for black people too. If you're black or Latina and you can't dance, there's something wrong with you. Right? right? Is there not that natural like thought that's like, oh, you must be a good dancer. Like rhythm must naturally beat like flow through your genes. Yes, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> right. <laughs> was that a masterpiece song? Shake what you got them jeans. I'm not sure. I think it was. I think that was masterpiece comeback. Girl, grab the wall and shake it like a dog. No, no. <laughs> shake what you got them know. jeans. No, no, no. It was. Wait, it started off with I'm country, you country, this a free country. Girl, you cute. Damn, you fine. No? No? Well, you know the whole song, so I'm going to trust you. <laughs> I, I only remember that intro because I remember, like, telling that to people, like, damn, you cute. Girl, you fine. No? No. I remember that. When did that happen? I want to say that was, like, my senior year of high school because I feel like I was at a dance, and that was a really cool thing to grab the ball and shake like a dog. Somebody has to Google this. All right, guys, we're going to find <laughs> this video and we're going to drop this in uh, the summary of this episode just okay. so you guys can see what I was getting down to in 2004 for my prom. Right. Can do a remake of it. Oh, yes. Can I please <laughs> well, shake what I got my jeans? Now the big booties are in. Oh, Randy just pulled it up. That's what it was. Master P. Coming back. I think that was even a dual album. It had like two CDs in that case. Mm. I miss CDs. No, I don't. I'm lying. I just got rid of all my CDs. Amazon has buyback program. There was a nostalgia feeling about it, though. Like, I would save them. I had a whole case with my CDs in them. And yeah. you would go to, like, Borders, and you would yes. listen to them. Like, they had the earphones, and you put it in and try out a couple different songs. Like, yep. it was an experience. Oh, yeah. Now it's gone. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Tower Records for me I used to flip through yeah. And stand in line when the new releases came out. Mm -hmm. um, what was that song? The Gator Boots song. You guys remember that? Mm. Gator Boots. Well, I pimped out Gucci suit. Ain't got no job. Mm. But I stay fly. But I stay mm -hmm. fly. Yes. I, oh, I can't think of who that was now. But I remember going to Tower Records. And I wasn't 18 yet. And it had explicit lyrics. And my cousin came with me to buy it. Because <laughs> my mom wouldn't let me have it. That was a big it. deal. Right. And I had just yeah. started. Yes. And I had just started driving. And I was like, I really need that. And that was my drive up song when I would pull up to school. I had this Toyota Tacoma. And I would roll down my windows. And, and like blast it. <laughs> and then I blew out a speaker. So it was like. It was like that brr, brr, where it would and like come. extra, yeah. <laughs> Blew out a speaker to that song. That was literally my drive. And I would only put it on when I was about to turn the corner to drive up to school in student parking. That was your moment. That was my moment. <laughs> Me and my pickup truck. I was extra white girl. <laughs> I was fronting, but I was trying hard. <laughs> but I want to go back to this. So like, I want to talk about dance. I want to talk about this inclusion of multiculture and what that means for you and how you express that you're biracial. Yeah. I'm curious if that stemmed from your upbringing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm biracial. I'm half white and half black. And my godmother's Chilean. My godfather's Kenyan. And I grew up in my mom's tea house for most of my adolescent years. And we had like live Brazilian music there. We had live Turkish music there. That's where I learned about the Buena Vista Social Club. <gasps> Love and them. the Fugees and Enya and Earth, Wind and & Fire and we just Ray Charles. Them. Like a million artists that we played in there. We're, and we're, yeah, yeah, Sorry to interrupt it. you. We were just talking about Lauren Hill on our <laughs> previous recording and my obsession with her and the Fugees. Oh, yeah, the, the Fugees. best ever. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, their rendition of Killing Me Softly is like, <gasps> yeah. Or Ready or Not, when you like need a little bit of tood. I just feel like <laughs> Lauren Hill is the most underappreciated female MC. Mm. Right? 
writes all her own lyrics, incredibly talented, plays so many instruments. I saw her last year at the Greek mm. where she was two hours late for her own concert and hadn't done a mic check. So everything was off. Yeah. But she brings it. She plays all the instruments. She's yeah. so talented. Life-changing. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, I've seen her live as well. And yeah, it's amazing. But I think what happened is just like, if you're not consistently doing something that's current, then people, but the fact that people still listen, that I listen to those songs, I still listen to the Fugees now. And I listened to it like 10 years ago. (laughs) Same, but with a deeper appreciation. Deeper appreciation. Oh, definitely. Can understand it more. Yeah, relate to it more. But yeah, so I... I grew up in a very multi-ethnic household and I grew up in Oregon, which is not diverse at I all. I was going to say. Yeah. So to be able to say that like I grew Like city up, Oregon or like- City Oregon. Like no, Dairy Farm, Oregon. No, like University of Oregon, okay. college town, and then Portland. I was in both. My dad lived in Portland. My mom was in Eugene. So I I grew up around a lot of culture for being in a place that didn't have much- So I really appreciated that. But because of that, it really taught me this idea of inclusion and having an open mind and just like embracing and loving different cultures and wanting to learn from them. My mom at the tea house like served food from different countries. So I was used to eating like yasa, which is a Senegalese dish, or eating tortilla espanola that my – my godmother taught my mom how to make, or we had like a chai tea that was an authentic chai with cardamom and Mm. star anise and that my mom had learned how to make from an Indian man that was a professor at the university that was a friend of hers. And so getting these authentic experiences here was really impacting on my upbringing and how I saw the view of my world. And so Always growing up, it's been really important to kind of include everyone. We were talking before the show about this idea of light skin and colorism. And oh, yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, thing. do people tell you that you act light skin having come from Oregon? Oh, like- yeah. Well, it was actually a really interesting contrast because when I grew up in Oregon, I was black. There's not enough black people in Oregon to be yeah. like, you're light skin or dark skin. If you just if have any melanin, then you are black. So I kind of had to take on this identity in Oregon of being like a black woman and what that meant to me there. And then I came to California five years ago and all of my friends are like, well, you're light-skinned, you're not black. And then most of my kids were students of color and they're like, no, Miss Quinn, you're light-skinned. So I was like, whoa, 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 (laughs) like hold up. (laughs) And I had to really like deconstruct all my thoughts about it and then realize what privilege comes from being light-skinned that's different. But then also that the story about being biracial is not really talked about. Nope. But it's like over fetishized a lot in the industry. The population of like multi multi ethnic people is growing larger and larger in our day and age. And so, being able to have that kind of like multicultural platform that embraces all of the different things that you have within you that you don't have to choose, right? That we kind of gravitate towards one side or the right. other, but that you can kind of embrace all of it. Oh, absolutely. You know, we, I've said this before on the podcast, but we have that in our own family. My mom's Mexican Catholic. My dad's an Italian Jew. I grew up closer to my mom's family. I feel like I look like them. And I think I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about always being told I wasn't Mexican enough. Like the schools that I went to, everybody was super Mexican. And I mean like Mexican, like, like chunt level. And I was just never that. Like my dad was white. I have a white name. I'm lighter than everybody. My Spanish Spanish is not a first language for me. We weren't exactly eating beans and rice and tortillas at home because mm-hmm. my mom married white. So my mom's a little more like, you know, openly creative to things. Sends me to school with like a stir fry with bamboo shoots. And like <laughs> your friend with pan bimbo is like, I'm gonna cut you after class. Right. Like you're not like us. Right. And then my you're sister different. went, she identified more physically as like looking like my dad's side of the family. Sarah has the hook nose, the curly hair. She was blonde as a baby. She didn't get dark hair until she got older, like in her teens. So Sarah was, you know, she's so white, she's pink. (laughs) And she got the big nose. She went super Jew. Like I went super Catholic. Sarah went super Jew. We're complete opposites. So it's interesting that like the features that you had and what you took after kind of formed your identity. Yeah. Because of what other people I saw you I felt more you welcomed as. on my 
mom's side of the family. Mm -hmm. I felt more included. And my sister did not, not that my sister didn't, but Sarah always felt like she didn't understand why she needed to speak Spanish. She Mm. spoke English. We didn't speak Spanish at home. My mom's the youngest of six. She's the only one who went to school here. My mom's the only one without an accent, Mm. right? All my aunts and uncles have heavier accents. My mom doesn't. We don't have it. And my dad doesn't speak Spanish. My parents have been married for 34 years. My dad speaks like hardly any Spanish. So we don't speak Spanish at home because my dad can't understand. Whereas like, you know, my aunts and uncles married partners who don't speak English. So they grew up, my cousins grew up only speaking Spanish at home. And what's interesting now is that, you know, Sarah and I have really embraced like speaking Spanish, practicing it more. And my cousins who grew up with the parents that didn't speak English, they've married white guys or other, mm-hmm. and they don't speak Spanish with their kids. So we have a new generation of cousins in the family that don't speak Spanish and don't understand because their parents grew up with like, oh my gosh, we didn't we didn't speak English at home. We're right. going to speak English with our kids. They were trying to, to them not speaking Spanish was a sign of moving up. And for yep. you, it's now that you didn't embrace your culture enough and you want to be able to go back and rediscover I that. Just, I don't know if it wasn't embracing my culture enough. I think it was just for me not being told that I was Latina. And I hate, because right. that's how I identified. And I hate when people don't do that. We've talked about this here on the show as well. I have been told that I'm not brown enough to have a brown girls rising show. Right. My name's Audrey Bellis. They're like, you are the whitest thing ever. Like, and I've had, I've actually had people reach out to me on Instagram with like kind of disparaging comments that are like, oh, that's some real privilege talking about interviewing brown girls when you're not even brown. And I was like, I'm so Mexican. Can you not tell? And they're like, <laughs> nah, nah, bitch, <laughs> you right. are not. Which again, really led to this precedent of the show to your point of inclusion being you know, what does it mean to be a brown girl and not wanting to talk about like, I don't identify with this Lena Dunham white girls feminism. I don't identify with black girl magic. What is everything in between? Like, where's everybody with all the different shades of brown? Are you Indian? Are you Southeast Asian? Like, what are you and how do you identify? And quite frankly, what does brown mean to you? Like to be a person of color. So I'm curious for you is, you know, you talked about growing up in Oregon is like, you're the black girl, Mm -hmm. right? For me, I was always the white girl, even though I'm not really white. <laughs> is calling yourself a brown girl, is that a, a term that you've like embraced and held with shame or pride or something that you've grown into, especially as you talk about like, you know, similarly growing up thinking, oh, well, this is just the way it is. I'm surrounded by so much inclusion. Everybody's welcoming in our households. And then you go outside and is everybody else still welcoming for you? Like I didn't realize other people didn't do Hanukkah and Christmas. I just thought everybody did all those things because my family was so blended. Right. I didn't realize other people didn't do that and that they thought that was weird. I think it stems down to a couple things. One is having a language and understanding language around it. So when I was younger, I didn't have a language for it. So when I experienced racism, I didn't know how to stand up for myself. And Mm. I think that was the biggest struggle. So then when I came to a place of identifying as a person of color, I um, had to figure out how to stand up for myself. And I didn't really learn how to do that until I became an adult and like really an adult and then moved to, to California and could really discover my identity more. So when I go back to Oregon, that's always kind of one of my like hooks or little chips that I have on my shoulder is that I feel like I'm always trying extra hard to overcompensate for when I didn't do that and lived there and how much it affected me and my psyche, but I just didn't really understand it. And now that I have this context for it, I'm like, oh, wow, that really affected me. Like the fact that in grade school, most of the girls that had a boyfriend or people had a crush on were the white girls. And I was sitting over here like, hmm, something's making me different, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so language is important. And then the other thing is privilege and realizing that we all have a sense of privilege. So I don't really identify with having white privilege because the color of my skin is brown. Yeah. So I don't really have white privilege in that sense. But when I think of the privilege that I got growing up with a white mother, and being biracial is a mentality. So there's a certain mentality and a quality of life that I learned in my household that I feel like I learned because of my mom being white and her upbringing and what she got from her mother. And so there was this sense of 
I don't have to struggle as much and quality of life. I could expect that I was going to have certain things. Right. And that also can come from class as well. And so some people might be of color, but they have class privilege that they're going to have over somebody else. So I think in general, it's really easy to want to point the finger at other people and be like, well, you don't look brown because you're biracial. Well, I am. Yeah. And I have a story for it. And I have a sense of privilege that I have to acknowledge. And I'm sure that this person pointing fingers has some sense of privilege that they have to acknowledge. And it's so easy to play the victim and make everybody else look bad. But when you actually can like have some self-awareness about about you, then it's less about pointing fingers and more about understanding yourself. Absolutely. I'm curious, you talked about uh, racial experiences. Do you remember your first racist experience where you're like, oh, "Oh." I will never forget that. (laughs) Okay, please let us know. So I was um, 15 years old in a psychology class and I was sitting in the room I was one of two people of color. There was an Indian girl and then me, and then everyone else was white. And I always sat in the front. I was like really focused student, wanted to take my notes. So I was definitely really serious about my education. So I was up in the front and the teacher wanted to use me as an example for a class activity. And I was really shy at the time. So I probably looked kind of hesitant to partake in this example setting. And she says, oh, come on. It's not like I'm going to lynch you or anything. (gasps) And I just like sat there (laughs) like, oh my God, did that just happen? And everybody looked at me like, what is she going to do? Yeah. And this other brown girl in the room was my friend and she was adopted by two white parents and, you know, directly from India and brought here. And so she's kind of doesn't have a language for this either. And then I have no language for this because I'm like, what just happened? And so I didn't do anything. And the class went on. The teacher didn't recognize that she did it. And this was actually a teacher who I really liked. She wasn't like this terrible teacher, but there's all of this, you know, racism that we've had within our country. And it's like, like buried, buried down and then stuff comes up. And so this thing came up and I didn't say anything. And I went home and I was more upset with myself than I was with the teacher. Right. Because I didn't have this language I needed to stand up for myself. And I wasn't learning it from my mom because she didn't need this language that I needed. Right. So I didn't do anything. But then a couple months later, we were covering prejudice. Yeah. The idea of prejudice in our class. And so she singled me out and she was like, well, do you have anything that you want to share? And I was like, well, now that I had a few months to think about it and like know what I wanted to say, I was like, well, actually I had something happen in this class. And then I told her what she had done and everybody was so quick to be like, oh, I remember that. I remember when that happened. I'm like, oh, y'all remember, but didn't nobody want to like actually stand up for me when it happened. And she was so apologetic. She couldn't believe that she had done it. And she like talked to me after class and just wanted to tell me how sorry she was. And I understood that she was sorry, but it didn't take away from the fact that here I am more than, gosh, it's like 13 years later and I still remember it like yeah. to the detail. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that That's was mine. Oh, <laughs> I can only imagine what that must have been like. And I feel like imagine if those things had happened now, that would have gone viral on Twitter. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, like, that would have been caught on Twitter. These have yeah. been, those were days when we didn't have social media mm-hmm. to the extent that we do. And we didn't have mm-hmm. phones in class. In fact, I was just talking uh, over the 4th of July weekend about my first cell phone when I was in high school and how it was a 20 minute a month plan. Mm. And it was that old school brick Nokia that you the could brick change. brick Nokia. Yeah, that was could, my first phone. You could buy the different like <laughs> faceplate and you could yep. interchange them. And I couldn't use a phone because I didn't have enough minutes because it was for emergencies only. But I would always change the faceplate to match my outfit. <laughs> and then we had night and weekend minutes. You could use yeah. it after nine o'clock and on yep. the weekend. Um, it was the texting that got me. I'd be on that texting all the time. Yeah, because texting wasn't unlimited back then. You used to have to buy your data plan or yeah. your message plan. Yeah. And it didn't take photos and no. we didn't have any cool stuff. And you could just play snake on it. And yeah, I was like, snake. Oh. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> And so, you know, we were talking about this experience of what it's like to raise kids in today's world where you have so much accessibility to um, injustice and you can see it in ways that like, I feel like this newer, this younger generation, I say this as a 31 year old person now, I'm feeling old, Mm -hmm. um, 
but the kids today, like in their teens and early twenties are so much more aware of things that I was not because it's so accessible. And what's scary is that, you know, even on the Brown Girls Rising Instagram, sometimes we'll post stuff about, you know, I don't know, this racial thing went viral or this was, you know, this unconscious bias was called out and it's bringing a lot of attention and people just have this like, let me drop some knowledge on your Instagram page for you Mm -hmm. where I'm just like, damn, how do you even know that? Like, right. It's so accessible. Information is m- so much more accessible. It is. And how scary to think that this is now in kids' faces even worse than it is, which makes me wonder, is that how we got to this place in this country where we weren't dealing with it? It wasn't in our faces. So if it wasn't in your face, it just didn't need to be dealt with. Or worse, we thought it didn't exist, even though it did. And like you said, not oh, having a language yeah. to address that. Yeah. Yeah, it did exist. And yeah, having a language to address it is what's really important because you can feel things, but not even necessarily know how to conceptualize what you're feeling if you don't have a language behind it. Oh, absolutely. So curious if you have a language for feminism. Do you identify as a feminist? And how has your relationship with that changed? Because I know for me, language around expressing what it means to be a feminist, how is it a feminist defined, were not things that easily came to me. Mm. I do identify as being a feminist and especially being raised by a single mother and just kind of growing up with this. I was going to say, I feel like you look like you came from a very (laughs) feminist mother. Like, I just feel that from you. Like, you're just, you're born in this environment. I was born in this environment. Um, Born to, you know, learn how to be independent and do things for yourself. And to say that that's even feminist, I guess, isn't even really true. That's just just strong women. Strong women. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like from my students, you know, learning a lot about, they're talking about the world that they're growing up in, you know, students that say, well, I'm, you know, what's the right word for it? Non-binary, gender non-binary. Oh yeah. There's so (laughs) many terms that come up that I'm just like, I don't even know what that means anymore. Not wanting to claim a gender, female or male. Well, no, that I get, but like, I feel like we've now emerged with Oh, I I think I talked about this on a previous episode. It was something like, like femme, not femme, aggressive, binary, some other where I'm just like, I don't even know what that means. You got lost in the words. I think we're like, we're giving conflicting. It's like when my dad goes, I was dating this guy for a while and my dad was like, so are you together? And I was like, we're talking. And he goes, what does that (laughs) mean? mean? (laughs) And I go, like we're together and we both know we're together and we're not seeing other people, but like we're not labeling it. My dad goes, so you're mutually exclusively not dating? <laughs> yeah, we're the generation yes. in the world of ambiguity. That's yes. Like we take we take the crown for that one. Including um, when how we identify as gender. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. We're ambiguous genders. In, ambiguous genders. Well, I hold women's soul circles, so that's kind of a part of my like female empowerment. What we talk Mm -hmm. about is we use language talking about um, self-love, compassion, intuition, dream work. So different different aspects that allow us to have self-awareness. Because when you're when you are talking about world issues is is a very big thing. Yes. And it's not something that's going to be fixed in a day. So whenever I talk about world issues and you kind of get stuck in this place where, oh, well, what are we going to do about it? I always come back to the self. I'm like, well, the first thing that you can change is yourself. Mm. And so self-awareness is really important. So even if you have habits that aren't going to change overnight, just being able to have an awareness that you have them is really important. And so through the Women's Soul Circles, we bring up different topics. I'll bring one each month that we do it. And... um we discuss what it means and kind of hash it out. And I like it to come from a personal place. So I'll usually have everybody do some type of activity where they're bringing something to work on for themselves. And so that's part of my like feminist movement contribution that I do is the women's soul circles. And uh, then also the goddess energy shirts. So my mother is a visual artist and I'm not a visual artist, but I I grew up in an artist household. So I've learned from her. So we have... A set of shirts and one of them is Frida, one is Lakshmi, and then another one is a self-portrait black woman that I did. And so the reason that I do different women of different backgrounds is to have this kind of inclusion within this multicultural world. And then the other idea is to use iconic figures that embrace and embody 
this idea of goddess energy, of feeling self-empowered, of bringing your female attributes and not feeling shamed by them and being able to embrace them. And so that's what the goddess energy shirts are about. And I've had men come up to want to purchase one when I've like sold at a, an, an artisan craft fair. And they're like, well, can I buy one of these or is it just for women? I'm like, if you have goddess energy, that doesn't necessarily go with a gender of being male or female. I think that when it comes to biology, there are certain parts that we carry or certain things that happen to us based on our gender. But then there's certain attributes that can be um, adjectives, personality traits, and we call something more female or we call something more male. So in that in that sense, I think it's fluid because being emotional doesn't mean that you're more female because men can be emotional too. Oh, yes. So. <laughs> Let me tell you, I know I know a few of those. Right. Who, who then call me cold and detached and like ice bitch over here. <laughs> because there's, but that's where self-awareness becomes really important because when you feel the need to tell somebody else all these things that they are, which may be true, Usually it stems from some type of reflection of something within yourself that you can't deal yes. with. <laughs> yes. So that's interesting. I get very offended when people call me cold because I don't think of myself as a cold, cold person. Yeah. I think of myself as a practical person. And when it comes back to how we label women as like, oh, you're aggressive. I've been told my whole life, you are aggressive. You are bossy. You are... Um, you excessively take charge. I've been called... I've been told I have a Napoleon you needed to get syndrome. get a job done. <laughs> right? Or, you know, when somebody says, oh, you are, and I've had, I had an ex-boyfriend who used to always tell me this. He was like, you're so cold. You're so detached. You have no feelings. You're unkind. And I used to tell him, no, I'm just practical. Like, I sit here and I am a practical, no bullshit person. I remove the emotion from it because things don't have to be emotional. They just are. Mm -hmm. And if you're excessively attaching emotional emotions to it, you know, again, what is your personal perspective that you're bringing in, right? Right. It, it can't hurt you if if you don't believe it to be true. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah, that's, that's really true. the bottom part of it. Yeah, so, it's the or, mind. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, it, if you're so offended by it, it's because somewhere deep down, you actually think it's true. And now you're ho horrified that yeah. somebody has shown that to your face. I'm curious what have been inspirational um, bodies of work for you in creating these soul circles. I'm a huge fan of A Course in Miracles, Marianne Williamson, and a lot of the things that you're talking about, I feel like, at least for me and my personal discovery of finding my own self-worth through worthy women and the narratives that we discuss here in Brown Girls Rising have really stemmed from that body of, like you said, the world as we experience it is a direct reflection of our internal conditions. And what are the things that we're saying about ourselves to ourselves, because you're right, it starts with us. Everything that we deal with is a reflection of, you know, thoughts that we have about ourselves, learned biases, our fears. I'm curious what has helped guide some of these transformations and topics through the soul circles. Well, the soul circles themselves kind of came from this really simple idea of spending time together. So I do it in Silver Lake area out on a veranda in a wellness house, basically, that's wellness holistic. They do Reiki and massage therapy work there. Oh, nice. So they have this really awesome outside veranda and we just sit in the back and I bring my mom's tea from um, her tea blends that she does and I make scones. And then I will bring this discussion point. And how they kind of came to be was really organic. It was through my bringing friends over to my house. So if you come in the morning or in the afternoon, I will serve you tea. If you come after four, I'll serve you wine. <laughs> like I always am going to serve you something. And then swage we'll sit there. All yes, swage all day <laughs> with the rosé. Yes. And, so, and so people will come over and then we talk. And instead of just being like, oh, well, this bitch said this to me or this person did this to me and being victims to our circumstances, it was about well, what awareness can we have? Like, okay, well, this happened to me, but what did I play in it? Or mm. what was the reason that it happened? Was there some bigger thing, some bigger lesson to learn here? And so that's where you kind of bring in this idea of self-awareness and language and really evolving yourself. And so I was like, we need a place with community for that. Right. that we can build community with that. And I'm all about building community. One, because I grew up with a mother who did the same thing. And two, because I'm a transplant in LA. So finding your tribe and finding people to work with that 
you feel good about that uplift you and you uplift them is really important. So that's kind of why I created the Women's Soul Circles. And then when I think of influences that I've had that have been really impactful on me, one would be Bell Hooks and her book, All About Love. And oh, I've actually yes. quoted that book, yeah, at Women's Soul Circle. Um, and just this idea about attaching ourselves to people and this idea of love and what does it mean to actively love and have it be a verb where you are creating actions around it versus just saying, oh, I fell in it. Like it was on accident. I just walked on this hill and there was a hole and I just fell in and just fell in love versus were you actively falling in love and love on a larger scale, loving yourself, um, loving others. So that was one big influence of mine. And then another would be my goddess energy deck of cards. Um, oh my gosh, please tell the, me about this. Yes. So they're amazing. They're actually pretty well known now. I've seen a lot of different women's groups using them. Yeah. Um, they're Doreen Virtue. Um, and they're hey, an- yeah, they're angel cards. Yeah. And so I love the goddess energy deck because each one of them has a lot of context and history behind them. So she uses like Egyptian goddesses or Indian goddesses, Celtic goddesses. There's so many different goddesses in the deck. And it kind of gives you this like little bit of understanding and history lesson and then also like a way to identify with it. So I pull these cards usually anytime that I do a meditation, I'll just kind of sift through them and I pick out a card for the day and then I read the meaning and I just kind of contemplate on how to incorporate that into my own life. So I love the goddess and the goddess deck. Okay. Well, I really want to do that with you because I'm highly curious (laughs) about this. Um, I have a friend who owns a intuitive branding coaching business and she is a visual graphic designer. She's very talented. It's called process progress. Mm. And she uses card decks, intuition, like Reiki energy sessions to help creative and intuitive entrepreneurs guide their vision brand and how they relate to their audiences. And I had a session with her that was incredibly impactful around my personal brand when I was redesigning my website and also around Worthy Women. And every once in a while, she does this amazing thing that I love. It's a sliding scale. She does it once a week and it's a pay what you can. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a suggested price, but it's like pay what you can intuitive reading. And she'll sit with you for a little bit and help you kind of channel energies and you come to it with a question, mm-hmm. right? Or a sense of what you're, what's really kind of on your mind. And then it goes through the exploration process of like, what are you feeling? What's coming up? And she really helps you dig deeper to like, what is your root cause of what you're unable to face and why you're unable to face that? What is the energy that you're attracting because of what you're putting out in the world? And I've done it a couple of times with her and it's so... This is where I go, this is some white girl woo-woo shit. But (laughs) it is incredible because it really helps you get in tune with yourself. And I feel like when we resist those things, like I think of all the things that have happened to me in my life and the most success I've ever always had has been when I've been so open to not forcing what it needs to look like and just letting it happen and being open to what the possibilities are. And quite frankly, asking for guidance. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of those people who will be like, all right, I need a sign. I need a oh, sign yeah. of something that's going to work. If you've got something out there for me, show me the way. I told you I um, I practice a course in miracles so every day. I do a little bit of kundalini meditation. I like to meditate with a mantra and I like it because it's so lyrical and moving and it helps me kind of like sway into my, my zone. But I also practice my, so every day I get up, I do the Course in Miracles lesson and then I meditate over that lesson, which really helps me. And then I go to daily mass. So from A Course in Miracles, there is a line that I've really adopted. And every time I do a speaking event or even before the podcast, every episode we record, I always silently ask myself and ask my higher power, what would you have me do? What would you have me say? And to whom? And just let it kind of flow. And I feel like the things that come up are always like, oh my gosh, I needed to hear that. It needed right. to come up. Because I feel like I've been guided towards it because I've created space and asked and asked to be guided to it. Um, I think that's so powerful. And I love that you're doing oh, that. it is. I mean, I've manifested business collaborations yeah. because of what I've put out and what I want. I have like a wish list of different people that I would want to work with. And then it's not about like, trying to then go out and like wrangle them to come to you, but like putting in the work 
and then just kind of keeping in mind this like this intention setting. Yes. So it's not manic manifesting. It's not like (laughs) I wished it. I put it on the vision board. He looks. He's gonna happen. He's got washboard (laughs) body abs, and he's gonna be here tomorrow. I see it. That's him. I swiped him. I want it. Yeah, you have to go out and put in the work, but then it's kind of knowing that those connections that you want will come. And so I've had some really awesome experiences because of that and really honing in. If you know what you want, like I think I I, I listened to this thing on some Facebook video that Will Smith said, and it was amazing. He was like, the universe needs to ebb and flow forward. It's like a river. It doesn't want anything to block it. So you just need to decide what you want. Just decide, and then the universe is going to help flow that in. But when you don't know what you want and you're like, mm, it could go this way or that way, then the universe can't help you because there's no decision to make. But when yes. you decide that this is it, the, it'll start to move in that direction. So it's all about like the power of your thoughts, what you're putting out there, your um, intentions. Paulo Coelho, the universe conspires to support you. Yeah. I absolutely believe that. Yeah, it's really strong. And then the other thing you said about the white girl woo-woo, which <laughs> I can totally think of and people are going to be like, oh my God, these are two biracial girls that have half half white parents. So that's why they're doing this. But the thing is, is that organized religion came from Europeans. Yep. And everybody before that was already practicing something. And the whole concept is to be tied into yourself and rooted into something that's above you. Like that's the main concept for everybody. People ask me if me going to daily mass is a religious thing. And I tell them it's a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. I don't go to daily mass because I'm uber Catholic. Yeah, I go because I went through a very severe depression. Mm-hmm. I stayed in bed for six months and literally couldn't function. And when I started coming out of that and re-experiencing life again and pulling my shit together, I treated my life like a 12-step program. And every day was just one day at a time. And if and here's for me the grounding and why I do this this way. It's meditate on a daily course in miracles. Here's my lesson. I then meditate. I do yoga glow at home because I don't always go to the studio. And in fact, I haven't been to the studio in a long time. Now it's mainly yoga glow in the morning. I love Elena Brower. She's one of my favorite instructors, and I get her virtually thanks mm-hmm. to the app. And then I go to mass. And my thought process is that every single day, if I can just get up, go to mass. I can be grounded and humbled in my intentions. All I have to do is get through that day. And tomorrow I can get up and do it again. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I just have to get through today. It's very much a 12-step, one day at a time, one thing at a time, one moment at a time, Mm -hmm. keeping my side of the street clean. What am I going to do to keep my shit in check Mm -hmm. and recognize myself and not worry about other people? And that's all I need every day. But I have to keep doing it every day. It's oh, a practice. It's a daily practice. You can't do that on Monday and be like, I'm good for the whole week. <laughs> no, no, no. And if you have seen me on the days that I haven't gone to daily mass, I'm not right. I'm yeah. a super bitch. It like yeah. keeps me humble and grounded mm-hmm. because I've come into my own. And I always feel like whatever the daily lesson is, that mass, that reading, there's something in it where I'm like, I, that was brought to me. That was meant for me. I needed this. Oh, yeah. Um, and so for me, it's very spiritually grounding. And it, it's interesting because a lot of the work that we do in Worthy Women and the concept, concepts around self-worth, like what is the relationship you have with others? It's a direct reflection of the relationship you have with yourself. Mm-hmm. So again, owning your own shit, keeping your side of the street clean. Everything we do is very grounded in a 12-step program. Yeah. And I haven't participated in a 12-step program in that capacity, but I'm pretty convinced there should be one for overachievers, workaholics, perfectionists, because I would definitely fall into that category. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for people like us or me, I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but us general, other people yeah. that are like me yeah. with a sense of constantly needing to overachieve um, to prove your value because we're only ever seeking love and belonging. Right. And it's this concept of like, well, if I'm not always perfect, I'm not going to be worthy of love and belonging and nobody's going to want me. So I really love, you know, this body of work that you're building and how you come into that. And it is kind of woo-woo, but I I truly think, as you said, it's just the connection to yourself and a higher power. And I don't really give a shit what your higher power is, but as long as you have one, because it disturbs me more when people are like, I don't believe in anything. And I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> like, well, okay, psychopath. Like, really, you have no moral compass that's bringing you to some sense of right and wrong. And it doesn't have to be a higher power. But is there something that's helping to guide, like, I am divinely brought into X experience because this was created for me. I've co-created this. And this is meant for my journey. Right. Well, that's when it's kind of like, it's their process. 
My mom loves to say that. Like, this is the language I grew up with. <laughs> they're in that, they're in a process and everybody's in a different process. You know, it's like when you have a friend who's dating somebody and you're like, I really don't think that you should be dating them. Yeah. And then you have to realize you're in a different process than them. And so cool. sometimes, yeah, I, you know, you just have to say like, it's even to yourself when people look at you and they're like, mm, I wouldn't do what you're doing. And you're like, well, I'm in a different process. And so we can only hope that everybody moves through the processes. And like each stop that you're going to is just a stop along the journey. And sometimes we get off on the stop and we stay there for like 20 years and then we get back on and keep going forward. So you just hope that everybody moves through the process and doesn't stop for too long. I think that's so beautiful to be raised with such language like that. We talk a lot about here on the show how we've been raised from past guests. Mm -hmm. And many guests talk about breaking the cycles of, of our parents. Yeah. Right? Like I think of for a long time, I really struggled with my relationship, especially with my mom, feeling like she never understood me. But now that I'm older, I really realize how alike that we are mm -hmm. and that how much I probably <laughs> scare her. Oh, yeah. And how much there's so much of of me in her that she looks at and she's terrified of. And there's so much of me that I look at my mom and I say, I don't ever want to be that way. So I'm going to overcompensate for this and how much that must scare the shit out of her because it's so familiar and it's mm -hmm. so much of your, literally your younger self where you go, you're repeating my mistakes, you're repeating the things I didn't want for you. And in, in effect, we drive those things to them. Oh yeah. And um, with my partner now, we're talking about kids, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about what does it look like when we have kids, raising our children, how we want to parent, like you know, those are really good conversations to have with right. somebody because if you don't like the way they're going to parent <laughs> or they already have kids and you, <laughs> you see how they it. parent and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't, I'm not down for this. Yeah. But having this like, and my undergrad's in psychology. Mm -hmm. So I always picture like, oh, well, I'm going to be that mom that like really gets why you make the choices that you make. I can understand your psyche in this and, mm -hmm. and what has led you to this. And you can only do that with yourself. Randy's rolling his eyes oh, at yeah. me. Because uh, then when you know what the process they're going through could lead to, you're like, well, you don't need to go through that process because this is going to be your result. So just yes. don't do it. And But they don't it doesn't that. work that it way. It doesn't work that way. You only learn it when you, you fall on you. your face. Mm -hmm. And every lesson I've had to learn were all things that my mom told me I shouldn't have done. And I really, we, I use this line a lot. I shawshanked myself. I had mm -hmm. to swim through a river of shit to come out clean on the <laughs> right. other side. And that shit yeah. was nasty. Oh. I, I think the relationship that we have with our mothers is really powerful and really important. I actually just wrote an article for Femin Fortune about that. I love with, Femin Fortune. Yes. Yes. I just wrote this article. So, Basically, I talk about, well, Swajay wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for my mother. So I spent like my first 20 some years, 22 years trying to not be like my mother. So same, um, same. Yeah, she was <laughs> she was a dancer, a business owner, had a tea house and a visual artist and she's spiritual. And so I was like, well, I'm not gonna be spiritual because you do palm readings and that looks weird. And my friends look at me weird. So I'm going to go to church and um, I want a palm reading. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm like literally like, what palm? does it say yeah. about me? <laughs> and um, my mom named her tea house Fool's Paradise, tea house and gallery after the Fool tarot card. Oh. And, um, and so I grew up in the, in this kind of way. And so I was like, well, that's not realistic. It's not safe. So I went to business school and did marketing naturally. And um, then when I moved, I did marketing after college and I hated it, but I was also doing dance and all the poetry and all these other things that really inspired me. And then I kind of had this thought of, well, why am I not doing these things for myself full time if they're what I enjoy and what I love. So then I got into them and then my mom became a part of that story. My second collection is Shibori Indigo, which is a Japanese style of dyeing process basically. And I learned it from my mom in the tea house because in the back of the tea house, we had a dye room and that's where she dyed all of her Shibori. Um, and my first collection was Afro inspired. I mean, my whole upbringing was West African culture. So everything that I do, the tea that I have at my women's soul circles is blended by my mom. So I basically became a second image of her. And so I talk in my article about how we, this idea of we pick our parents before we've come here and we know lessons that we want to learn. Oh, <laughs> you guys, all my feels right now are like, yeah. 
And so we come, we come here and at first, usually it's a struggle. You're like, no, I don't want to be like them. And then there's certain things that you choose not to do. By this time, my mom had been married and had a couple kids. Like I've never been married. I don't have kids. Um, so there's certain things that you don't pick up from them as well. Like, not that I won't ever do that, but it's just not right now. And so, um, realizing that I am like my mother's daughter and that we are two peas in a pod, but it's, it's created such a beautiful story. I mean, she sews a lot of my clothes up in Oregon and she sends them down here. So I design them and I sew, I sew with her when I'm up there, but she does majority of that work from up there. Like this, the piece I'm wearing, I'm doing a a concept video where a friend of mine is composing a violin piece and I'm choreographing the movement for it. And it's, taking this multi-layered approach to design and fashion and that it's not just about the clothes, but like, what are you embodying and right. what's like the whole vision? And I mean, I asked her for four, spe- like, cause we're creating a special edition line out of this, this rayon linen. And, um, I asked her to do it like a week ago and she has four pieces on their way to me today so that I can film it this weekend. Yeah. So everybody just needs like that, boss mom who just like <laughs> can bring it because yes. but I like to say behind every like great woman she's got like a fabulous phenomenal mom yes. <laughs> that raised her so hopefully oh. that's the case and when I think about paying that forward like how can I repay my mom for what she's done it's like that I'll pass it on to my kids when I have them like I've got to be just as much of a rock star to my kids you know um People talk shit about the Kardashians, but I think if I was a mom, I would be like Kris Jenner. I'd be a momager. <laughs> I think she's brilliant. Yeah. I think that woman is absolutely brilliant when she's, she's got for her family. Yeah. She has, regardless of your opinions about who they are and what they do, I think that woman is a genius. I mean, she's got them to where they are. Not just that. She built Bruce Jenner's career. Yeah. She she learned a lot over the years. And she was, you know, my past, my previous guest that I had just before you, we talked about what it means to be a woman of color and always being underestimated. Mm. People always underestimate you. That's a woman that people always underestimate. Right. <laughs> um, and may you have a momager like Kris Jenner right. or somebody who gives that much of a shit about your future and your mm-hmm. potential that they create those opportunities for you. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for yeah. being with us. Yes, Where can me. our audience find you? My website is swajeco.com. So it's www.swajeco.com. And the Instagram handle is Imani underscore Quinn. So I put everything that's personal for my poetry and my art and then also Swajay on there. And that's I-M-A-N-I underscore Q-U-I-N-N. Excellent. And Swajay's social media handles? That is all under Imani Quinn. And then under uh, Facebook and Twitter is Swajay Co. Excellent. So we yeah. will link to those in the summary so you guys can all connect. We'll also get the Soul Circle information mm-hmm. from you. You said those are monthly? I do them monthly. Monthly. Yeah. So if you're local to LA, we'd love to have you. You guys, we are planning a Brown Girls Rising brunch. So maybe we could collaborate. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. And do something together around that because... I could see a lot of our audience members loving that. It has been a pleasure to have you. I can be found at Audrey Bellis, and this has been Brown Girls Rising. We hope this episode has inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time. 